Hey, just a quick heads up that this podcast contains content that some people might find disturbing. So please take care while listening. How many people could have seen this coming? How many people really knew that this was a potential fate that was awaiting these women? From Post Media and Antica Productions, this is True Crime Byline. I'm Kathleen Goldhar. On September 22, 2015, Basil Borutsky left his home on a mission. The Ottawa Valley man, who had a history of domestic violence, had his sights on three women. Carol Culleton, Anastasia Kuzak, and Natalie Warmerdam had all known Borutsky. And they were all scared of him. But despite their pleas to authorities, Borutsky was able to get a shotgun, load it with ammunition, and kill all three women. This isn't the first time that we've talked about domestic violence on this podcast. In another episode, I spoke with reporter Barb Pahalik about the killing of Joanne Wilson. Joanne was killed by her ex-husband in 1983, and after her death, it was clear that there were warning signs. Nearly four decades later, you'd think we would have gotten better at recognizing those signs, but the Borutsky killings showed That isn't the case. Two years before his rampage, authorities had determined that there was a high probability that Borutsky would continue to commit acts of violence towards women. But little was done to prevent that from happening. Aidan Helmer, a journalist with the Ottawa Citizen, was there when that inaction turned tragic. Well, I certainly have a very vivid memory of that day. I was working in the newsroom at the time of the Ottawa Sun. Back in those days, we used to have a police scanner that we uh, used to listen to. So we had an editor who was just tuning into the scanner that morning. And the red alert went out right away when the first victim was identified by police. We didn't really know much more information than that, other than the area that it was in, up in cottage country, basically, for this area. And then the second call came in, and then it obviously elevated. The second person was found in the town of Wilno. Then we got the third call, and at that point, the full team was put into action, was sort of assigned to head to the community, to start working the phones, to talk to police contacts, to try to figure out what was going on. It did actually keep escalating because there was word, basically, that this killer, we didn't know who he was at the time, was on his way to Ottawa, that he had a list of targets, and that he was just sort of systematically going his way through this list and that one of those targets or more were in Ottawa and he was on his way to finish what he had started. Was that list a bunch of other women that he had been involved with? Strangely enough, we don't know everybody who was on the list, but the three women who were killed that day were all, again, connected to him either romantically or he had a romantic interest that was unrequited. There was another man on the list that 
was to be the fourth victim that day, and he actually went to this man's property. He didn't know the guy's name. Again, somebody who he felt had wronged him in the past. He actually showed up at this person's property but found that he wasn't there and then drove on and kept making his way closer and closer to Ottawa before he ended up at a a hunt camp where he was ultimately arrested. Tell me a little bit about the area where this was all happening. So it was Renfrew County. You were mentioning that it's cottage country up that way, but it's small, and that had an impact on even just the response to it, right? Well, yeah, and I mean, that was one of the major narratives that would come out of this. Just the vulnerability, especially that victims of domestic violence, and women in particular, felt being in that sort of rural isolated uh, community like that. Again, a very close-knit community, but geographically very large, spaced out. You know, one of these killings happened at a cottage on a remote, you know, dirt road that was barely accessible. One of these uh, killings happened in the town of Wilno, right in this small village. And then a third one happened, you know, on a rural road at a farmhouse. And then the spree would have continued. So tell me about that day. How did it all unfold? We know that Basil Barutsky had an apartment, a very small town called Palmer Rapids. It's just a sort of a crossroads almost. We know that he had a shotgun. We don't exactly know how he acquired it. He told police that he had found it. He owned a hunt camp as well. He did have two convictions for domestic violence, and he was under a lifetime weapons ban at the time. Yet, he managed to have a shotgun. We know that that morning he got up, left. We have surveillance video of him getting into his vehicle at his apartment and then driving to Carol Culleton's cottage. He, as far as we came to understand, was interested in a relationship with Culleton. She had rejected him. She had just retired when he showed up that morning And obviously, we don't know. There were no witnesses. There was nobody in the area. Nobody saw or heard anything. All we know is that she was killed. She was strangled with uh, the power cord from her television set. From there, he stole her car and drove into the town of Wilno, where he then went to the house of Anastasia Kusik, who was a former girlfriend. They had split up. He was charged with assault for assaulting her and jailed for it. He had been released from jail, I believe, nine months or so before the killings and was under a court order to avoid all contact with the victims. He refused to sign that court order. So that was another early warning sign. So he refused to sign a no contact order for Anastasia Kuzik. He showed up at her house that morning. She was in the kitchen with her sister, screaming instantly as soon as they saw him coming out of the car, walking up to the house. The sister ran for her life, screaming for help, and he shot and killed Anastasia there in the kitchen. He then left the house, got back in the car, and drove to the home of Natalie Warmerdam. He had a prior relationship with her as well. That ended again in charges. He was charged with threatening to kill Natalie's son. Natalie had told authorities that she was terrified of Brutsky and needed protection, but didn't feel they had done enough to keep her safe. So she took matters into her own hands. She had a panic button that had been installed right beside her pillow. She had a shotgun underneath her bed. She was in fear for her life from this man in particular. 
And he showed up that day and she never had a chance. She didn't get a chance to, to reach the weapon, to reach the panic button. Her son ran for his life, hid in the woods, called 911 and waited until police arrived later. And she was chased through her house and was shot and killed by Basil Barutsky. And then he took off and how did police catch him? He was cornered eventually. I believe it was a family member of his, a brother that was cooperating with police. And they narrowed in on his location and it turned into a full OPP, Ottawa Police Joint Takedown. Two teams in an L formation coming out of the woods, a helicopter circling overhead. You know, they believed this man was still armed and dangerous. He had killed three people and was on his way to kill more. They took every precaution with him and this takedown, which was every bit as dramatic as, uh, as you could imagine. You went to Renfrew before the trial. Like you said, small towns, everybody knows everybody. Tell me about what you discovered about the impact these things had on the people of that town. Well, the most impactful conversations that I had were certainly with the women who were working to protect other women who were victims of domestic violence. Natalie Warmerdam in particular had a long relationship with uh, these organizations who were doing their best to get her the help that she needed to ensure that to the best of their ability that she would be safe. These things like having a panic button installed, arming herself, these women again were left on their own to fend for themselves against an armed, violent, psychopathic killer who had a vendetta specifically against them. So that became the dominant narrative and it was impossible to ignore. Just that was the conversation that you would have with everybody from the Wilno Tavern right down to the headquarters of these organizations who were specifically there in place to help protect these women and were unable to. I find this story so depressing. Like I mentioned in the intro, Joanne Wilson was killed by her husband after years of harassment and threats. And in this story, again, there's all of these people who know that this man is dangerous and after women. It just feels like there really is still this sense that these women's lives weren't worthy enough to do enough to protect them. It just, it's sort of a gutting story. It is. I remember going up for the sentencing. The trial happened here in Ottawa, but the sentencing was moved back to Renfrew County, to the Renfrew County Courthouse in Pembroke. And I remember going up there for the sentencing day and they only have two courtrooms in that courthouse and they put us in the biggest one, obviously courtroom number one. And it was just overflowing with people to the point where they actually had to take the press, the media, they had to put us into the jury box because there were no seats left for us. All the seats were filled with family members, with community members. It was just really quite an incredible display. It just so happened that his sentencing took place on December 6th, the National Day for Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women. That night, there was a vigil for his victims. All of the flags were at half-mast, and the streets were lined with people, mostly women, all dressed in black and carrying signs about just how they felt let down by the system, by how all three of these victims could have been protected 
And then uh, Valerie Warmerdam, Natalie's daughter, spoke outside to the reporters as well. This is a man I lived with for two years. I considered him family. And every, every little mannerism that is his, when I see it in somebody else, whether it's a, a phrase or a, just a way he stood, I, I, I immediately have to remind myself that just because somebody says that little saying doesn't mean that they're him. Natalie's best friend, Tracy McBain, was there too. It's Christmas. Um, we're looking at family pictures. And one of the family isn't there. An important piece of the puzzle isn't there. And we miss her desperately. It was impossible not to leave there, just, you know, feeling like you've been, as you say, gutted. Borutsky didn't really participate in the trial. He represented himself and didn't enter a plea. He didn't say anything at all through the trial. He had a uh, court-appointed amicus, which is a defense lawyer who basically acts in a capacity just to protect your right to a fair trial, doesn't give you legal advice. Uh, and Borutsky would just sit there stone-faced, silent. When a witness is called, generally the Crown will examine them and the defense will have a chance to cross-examine. Well, that didn't happen in this case. He just never exercised his right to participate in any meaningful way. He was ordered to have a psychiatric evaluation back when the trial was in Renfrew County. He didn't participate in the psychiatric assessment. He just refused to participate in the psychiatric assessment. At that point, a not criminally responsible plea was off the table, and he just entered no plea, so we went on the presumption that that is a not guilty plea. And again, like I say, just refused to participate throughout the entire trial. Didn't say a word. Did he seem to understand what was going on? Well, there was some question about whether he understood what was going on, whether he was in his right mind, whether he was catatonic or whether he was just putting on an act. I suppose people can make their own judgments, but late in the trial, after his opportunity had passed, that's when he finally broke his silence. You know, the, the closing arguments had already been made. The last witnesses had already testified. And that's when he decided to stand up and say to the judge, well, when do I get my chance? And the judge, a very experienced Superior Court Justice, Robert Moranger was his name. He immediately led the jury out of the room. He didn't want them to hear any of this. He led them out of the room and Barutsky had his say. He accused the judge of being part of this big lie and then saying, basically, I never got a chance. When do I get my turn to speak? When do I get to talk to the jury? The judge said, look, that opportunity has already passed. There is a structure to the way that trials go. The amicus at that point stepped up and said, yes, Mr. Barutsky, this is the way the trial goes. You've had your chance. You didn't say anything. The chance has passed. The jury is returning with a verdict. Like, it's too late. The predominant theory, I guess, among a lot of observers was this was a guy who justified these horrible crimes to himself by telling himself that he was the victim, that he had been screwed over by the system. And this was just one more way that the system screwed Basil Barutsky over. And here I am in jail serving 
the rest of my natural life a 70-year sentence before parole eligibility. One of the longest consecutive sentences ever handed out in Canada. And he can justify it to himself by saying, well, I never got my chance to tell the jury what my story was. So he got life for each woman. Yes, he was found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder and one count of second-degree murder. So 25, 25, and 20 ended up with a 70-year sentence. He was 60 years old or something around that at the time he was sentenced. So that was... A life sentence. A true life sentence. A true life sentence, as the judge called it. Did you ever find out anything about him? Do you have any sense of where all this misogyny and violence came from? I don't know how much true insight we ever got into his mind. We heard about, you know, the things that he did in the days before to prepare himself, I suppose. He read his personal Bible. He had his own version of the Ten Commandments. He was, at best, a severely unstable person who had these delusions. You can hear it in his voice, in his police interview, in his confession the day after the killings. Now, obviously, as of right now, you have been arrested for murder, okay? So, if you'd like to phone a lawyer... For killing, not murder. For killing, not murder, okay. And he says he's being arrested for killing, not murder. If you'd like to speak to a lawyer... So he believed in his mind that he had been wronged and that he was exacting some sort of revenge, some sort of justice. You know, he had written a letter that he mailed to his former parole officer. It read very much like a suicide note. He said, I'm on my way out, and I'm going to take with me as many people who have wronged me as possible before I go. When I was coming into this process, a lot of people told me that they hoped that I was going to get the closure I was seeking, that the answers I was seeking from this process. And while I appreciate their sentiment, it's not why I'm here. In the summer of 2022, a coroner's inquest was called into the Barutsky murders. I'm here because I knew if there was anything I could do to add to this process to help get us solutions to this problem, I wanted to do it. The jury made 86 recommendations aimed at preventing gender-based violence. Things like the lack of information that Natalie Warmerdam was getting back in 2012 when she was going to the probation office to try to find out, where is Basil? Is he out? Where is he living? Am I in danger right now? And it came out, too, that women in smaller areas were disadvantaged, right? Well, the, and again, the numbers of domestic violence rates of fatalities, femicide that happen in rural communities are much higher rates than what we will see in urban centers. And again, I think that just speaks to that lack of centralized support. I want change. I think these recommendations are a good start. If they're actioned. It's a big if. Tell me a little bit sort of of the emotional impact this had on you as a human being. You're told to remain objective as a reporter 
And it's very difficult to do that when you are really confronted with the evils of the world, when you're put face to face with the type of person who could do something like this. And then you sort of step back from that and see how many people were affected by this, how many people could have seen this coming, how many people really knew that this was a potential fate that was awaiting these women and were powerless to do anything about it or felt powerless to do anything about it. Again, what came out through the inquest is that there were warning signs, there were things, there were interventions that could have been made. There was the opportunity for a closer supervision of this very dangerous, unstable man. And those warning signs were missed, those triggers were missed. And what happened was, in the words of the judge, one of the saddest and darkest days in this community's history. Um, and you couldn't help but be affected by it. I mean, I, I grew up on a dirt road with four houses on it. I grew up in a community very much like the farmhouse that Natalie Warmerdam would have been in or the cottage that Carol Culleton would have been in. The setting was very familiar to me. And the fears that those people felt and the vulnerabilities that those people felt were very real. When there's a man who has so much hate in his heart and has a shotgun in his hand and is running up your driveway, I just can't imagine the mortal fear that those people would have felt. Um, and there was nothing they could do about it. Byline is produced and mixed by Mitchell Stewart and hosted by me, Kathleen Goldhar. Our associate producer is Emily Morantz. The executive producers for Post Media are Andrea Hill, Chris Gallipo, and Erica Tustin. Stuart Cox is the president of Antica. Special thanks to Nicole Ferrienchek, deputy editor of the Ottawa Citizen and Ottawa Sun, and Aaron Valois, the vice president, digital strategy for Post Media. If you're a journalist and you think you have a story that would work really well on this podcast, let us know. Send us an email at truecrimebyline at postmedia.com. <laughs>